And I'm just so thankful to gather together with God's people and to celebrate the Lord. We're going through a sermon series throughout the month of December entitled Vintage Christmas. And we're looking at some Old Testament scriptures and how they point forward to the birth of Jesus. And so each Sunday in the month of December, we're having some conversations with some of our more vintage staff members. So Rick Swing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Can you share with us, what is your oldest Christmas memory? Um, I was probably, I've been saying five and six. It may have been seven or eight. Uh, who knows? My memory is vintage. It's <laughs> not quite what it used to be. Um, we grew up in a small town called Francisville, Indiana. Uh, both sides of my family from there is a farming community. And there was a, it's a town of a thousand. I think there's still a thousand people in that town. Um, so it was a very close-knit um, town. Um, our families were very close, and during the holidays, we always gathered together. And one of our traditions was on Christmas Eve is that uh, my uncle and his wife would come over to our house, and as my dad's brother. And um, we have a great time, and on Christmas Eve, we had one of those things where we would get, open up one gift out of the stocking that was hanging over the mantle. And then we'd go to bed, and then we'd wake up the next morning bright and early to a wonderful Christmas. Well, this particular Christmas, um, I was awakened in the middle of the night after we'd opened our gift, went to bed, and preparing for Christmas morning, and I, I heard something that startled me, and it woke me up. Well, my first thought was, Santa is in the house. That was my first thought. And then as I began to listen closer and closer to all that was taking place, that the, the sounds were familiar. There was laughter taking place in our living room around the Christmas tree. It sounded like my dad, and it sounded like my Uncle Denny. So I quickly got my brother up, Scott, and we went into our sister's room, Kelly, who was the littlest of us, and uh, she was real tiny, just kind of learning how to walk. And we decided we were going to crawl down the hallway to find out what was going on. Right. So in our hallway in that home, uh, there was a partition that was between the hallway and the living area. It was a thick kind of partition, and but the bottom foot and a half was open, so you could see underneath, if you were on your belly, into the living area. So we crawled on our bellies, and I was the oldest, so I was first. And uh, I stuck my head around the corner, and to my, I mean, I was just, I my, took my breath away. There was my dad and my uncle playing with my slot car racetrack that I had asked <laughs> Santa for. <laughs> I didn't understand how that could happen. I love so it. I was kind of stunned. I told them they're in there playing with our gifts. <laughs> and so we, everybody took a peek. And I said, man, we need, we need to get back to, to bed because if not, who knows? Santa may not come. Right, right. I couldn't quite understand everything that was going on. <laughs> so we went back to bed. And the next morning we got up early and we went back out there. And that gift, the slot car racetrack, was all wrapped back up. <laughs> it was in its box. So I opened the gift and there it was. And I looked at my dad. And I said, I want you to know that I saw you playing with my slot car racetrack last <laughs> night. And my dad looked me right back in the eye. He denied ever doing it. What are you talking about, but Rick? Every year he denies it. <laughs> and so as I sit here sharing this story, I'm not quite sure if it's true <laughs> or I just made all that up. Because my dad put all these in. That was my first childhood. Oh, that's so good. That's so good. Well, what is your, what's your favorite Christmas uh, memory? And there are so many, and I refrain from saying it was it was our first child's birth at because he was born in November, and so our first Christmas with our little one because the other one's been jealous and right. would be, um, 
And I refrain kind of a Christmas gift because we had many of those growing up as kids. But I think the Christmas that kind of changed the way I looked at Christmas was when I was actually out of college and I was playing basketball for Team USA. And so I represented the United States in the World Cup over in London, England. And we were there over Christmas. It was the first Christmas in 24 years that I had been away from family. Mm -hmm. So that in itself was difficult because I just wasn't used to the feeling of not having family there and opening gifts and laughing and especially eating what we would eat at Christmas Day. And so we were there, and I'll never forget Christmas Eve. Um, our head coach came in. We had a team meeting, and, and we had little gifts that they had given us and stuff like that. But he said these words. He says, tomorrow morning on Christmas Day, as a team, we're going to go to the maximum security prison here in London, and we're going to spend Christmas morning with all those inmates. Um, and I want you to know, it kind of changed my perspective. I've told the story in years past here about meeting Sam. That's where I met Sam there in that London prison. And I had the opportunity to, to lead Sam to the Lord on that Christmas holiday. And um, it was very special. And the staff knows this, but if you get sick and you're in the hospital on Christmas Day, I tell the staff, that's my day. And on Christmas Day and Thanksgiving Day, nobody wants to be in the hospital. And so um, I go to the hospitals and visit those who are in the hospital on Christmas Day. And it kind of changed my perspective. It's not what we get. Yeah. It's what we get. That's good. That's Praise God. Church family, I hope that you have people in your life who encourage you, who speak words of life, words of wisdom, that coach you up and help you grow in your walk with the Lord. And by God's grace, I am so thankful that I get that man in my life, and it's Rick Swing. And I am so thankful for him, his leadership, and his investment in our church, but also into my life. Church family, can we thank the Lord for Rick Swing? Love you, my friend. Proud of you. Thank you, my friend. You know, I was thinking back to my earliest Christmas memory. And I remember as a child, uh, I got a, a Nerf bow and arrow. And I was so excited about getting this, this treat that uh, I opened it up immediately and I began practicing in my hallway in our, our childhood uh, home. And as I'm in this hallway, at the end of the hallway was this door where there was a door handle and that was my target. So I spent the entire morning just pulling back and just trying to hit that door handle all morning to no avail. I just, I never could hit it. Well, that afternoon, my grandparents came over and my grandfather was legally blind. And I said, hey, granddad, do you want a, a shot with my Nerf bow and arrow? And he's like, yeah, sure. And so he pulls back on it and I kind of line up his body of where he's supposed to go and he pulls back and lets it fly and he hit that door handle first time. And I was so mad. I was like, you can't see it, and yet you still hit it. Oh, it was so frustrating. So I'm just so thankful for moments like that in which God just makes us humble. Good moments that are good gifts from the Lord. So let me ask you, have you ever watched a movie that was just absolutely captivating? I'm talking about a storyline in which you are just so spellbound by what you're watching. You see a story with twists and turns and a plot that leads to a triumphant end that you did not see coming. The story is, is so captivating that you sit on the edge of your seat and you, you lean in eager to see what is next. And then when the words, the end, show up on the screen, you are frozen in your seat amazed by what you just saw. Well, this morning, we're going to look at a small book in the Old Testament that is absolutely enthralling. 
This story has twists and turns, tragedy and despair, true love, and a cliffhanger that at the end, it leaves the reader wondering what happens next. And the best part of this story is this story is true. Let me show you. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Ruth chapter 1. Ruth chapter 1. That's where we're going to be setting up camp this morning. We're going through a sermon series entitled Vintage Christmas. And we're seeing how God has brought something new out of the old. We've been looking at Old Testament scriptures and seeing how they foreshadow, they point forward to the birth of Jesus Christ. Two weeks ago, we saw in Genesis 12 where God made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations and through him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. Well, we fast forward to the New Testament and see that Jesus is the promised offspring of Abraham, that he is the one through which all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Last week we looked at Micah chapter 5 where God promised a coming king that would be born, not in Jerusalem, not in Alexandria or Athens or Rome, but in Bethlehem. Fast forward to the New Testament, we see Jesus is the promised king born in Bethlehem. Now today we're going to see a story unfold about a woman born in Moab. Now Moabites were a people group that were arch enemies of Israel. And yet God used this Moabite woman to be the one through which a kinsman redeemer would come and save God's people. But I want to warn you of a danger. The danger that you and I experience is becoming so familiar with the text that we forget what it looks like to read the Bible for the very first time. You see, familiarity can breed apathy. It's true within marriages, it's true within relationships, it's true at your job or at your school, but it's also true when we read the scriptures that you can become so familiar with the text that you become apathetic over what you're reading. So this morning, let's look at the text with fresh eyes, soft hearts, open minds, and an eagerness to obey. Look with me in Ruth chapter 1, beginning with verse 1. It says, During the time of the judges, there was a famine in the land. A man left Bethlehem in Judah with his wife and two sons to stay in the territory of Moab for a while. The man's name was Elimelech, and his wife's name was Naomi. The names of his two sons were Malan and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They entered the fields of Moab and settled there. Naomi's husband, Elimelech, died, and she was left with her two sons. Her sons took Moabite women as their wives. One was named Orpah, and the second was named Ruth. After they lived in Moab about ten years, both Malan and Chilion also died. And Naomi was left without her two children and without her husband. You see, the first five verses set the stage for the rest of the book. Naomi, her husband Elimelech, and two sons have left the ho- their hometown of Bethlehem, and they've gone to the country of Moab in order to survive a famine that has come upon Israel. Well, while, le- while living in Moab, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a single mom raising two sons all by herself. Her sons grow up and marry Moabite women, one named Orpah, and the other, her name is Ruth. But tragedy strikes again. Naomi's two sons die. At the end of verse 5, there are three dead husbands and three widows. Now, women who are here this morning, 
What would you do in that situation? Imagine that a famine strikes your hometown and you have to move to a country that you have never been before. Quite literally overnight, you become a refugee. And then once you get to that land, your husband dies. And then after your husband dies, your two sons die, leaving you childless. What would be going through your mind? Well, how would you feel in that experience? How would you respond? Well, that is exactly the situation that Naomi has found herself in. Grieved by the death of her husband and sons, Naomi starts traveling at the end of chapter 1 back to Bethlehem. And she, inst- and, and she instructs her two daughters-in-law, chapter 1, verse 8, go home. Go back to your families in Moab. And she tells them, I'm too old to have babies. And even if I was married and was able to conceive and raise up sons, are you going to be willing to wait around until they're old enough to marry? She says, you need to go on. You're still young enough where you can remarry and you can survive. My life is bitter because, verse 13, the Lord's hand has turned against me. The three women weep together over their plight and Orpah bids farewell. Ruth, however, holds on to her mother-in-law and says, I'm staying. Verse 16, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. What is Ruth doing? Ruth is displaying covenant faithfulness, not only to Naomi, but to the Lord. She is refusing to go back to Moab. She decides to hold fast to the Lord and to his people. May I say to you that this kind of fidelity is hard to find. We live in a culture that is very much a what-have-you-done-for-me-lately kind of culture. When marriage gets hard, situations get difficult, when fun turns into sacrifice, we tend to go the way of Orpah rather than the way of Ruth. But Ruth is showing us what discipleship looks like. She is showing us what it means to follow the Lord. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, that if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross daily, and follow me. You see, following Jesus, following the Lord, means you're willing to turn away from yourself, turn away from your old way of life, and to trust and to follow him no matter the cost. Don't miss this. Following Jesus is never easy, but always worth it. It is always worth it. Instead of going back to her old way of life, instead of going back to the worship of false gods, she's trusting the Lord with her future. Don't miss this. A follower of Jesus is wholeheartedly devoted to Jesus. In John chapter 6, the crowds are gathering as Jesus is preaching and teaching and healing. And he performs this miracle that shocks the crowd. He takes a few loaves of bread and some fish and he multiplies it to feed 5,000 people plus women and children. And the people just love it. They're having their bellies filled for free. They're getting a show as Jesus is performing these miracles. So this dinner and a show is taking place in John 6, and the crowds just love it. But every time in the Gospels, as the crowds get larger, Jesus turns around and he gives a very difficult truth. And he says, I am the bread of life. In essence, he's saying, listen, your full tummies that you have right now, those those stomachs that are satisfied right now, ultimately, I am the one who satisfies you. 
I am the bread of life is the one who meets your needs. But then he does this. He says, if anyone wants to come after me, you must be willing to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And everyone's like, time out. Whoa, wait, whoa. this is a little bit difficult here, Jesus. You're asking for too much. You're saying I have to be willing to, to do some crazy things. I have to be willing to suffer if I'm going to follow you. And then you get to John chapter 6, verse 66. One of the more disheartening verses in all the Bible. And it says, and from that point forward, many of the disciples turned and walked away from Jesus. Jesus then turns to his 12 and says, are you going to leave too? Simon Peter says, to whom shall we go? For you have the words of life. And we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, following Jesus is one in which we have to be fully committed to him. You see, Jesus isn't interested in passive fans. Jesus is after passionate followers. Here we see that God is after those who will trust him and follow him even when it gets hard. And this is what Ruth is doing in chapter 1. She's willing to say, I'm going to remain faithful to my Lord and to my God. And so I will follow you, Naomi, wherever you go. So as the chapter closes out, the two women, they arrive in Bethlehem. And the town is really excited to see them. But Naomi tells everyone she's got a new nickname. Don't call me Naomi anymore. You can call me Mara, which means bitter. She's discouraged. She's depressed. She's in the doldrums. She's had to suffer. She's had to go through so much. And yet the Lord is up to something here. It gets to chapter two. We see Ruth. She volunteers to go and gather grain in the fields in order to provide food for herself and for her mother-in-law. But as providence would have it, she finds herself harvesting in the field of Boaz, a man from Elimelech's family. Well, how about that? Sweet providence. Well, as Ruth is Working in the fields, Boaz shows up on the scene. He sees this new girl working his land, and he says, hubba hubba. Chapter 2, verse 5, who is that? So Boaz seizes the opportunity to go and meet this girl, and he shows her favor, and he promises, I'm going to promise you two things. I'm going to promise protection and provision. Look at chapter 2, verse 8. Then Boaz said to Ruth, listen, my daughter, don't go and gather grain in another field and don't leave this one, but stay here close to my female servants. See which fields they're harvesting and follow them. Haven't I ordered the young men not to touch you? When you are thirsty, go and drink from the jars the young men have filled. Isn't it amazing here that we see Boaz honoring Ruth's fidelity to the Lord and to her mother-in-law, Naomi. And he is ensuring that these two women will be taken care of. Well, for Ruth, this is too good to be true. But then it gets better. Boaz invites Ruth to an after-work party. Verse 14. He says, come on over here and have some bread and dip it in the vinegar sauce. Boaz is inviting Ruth to come and eat and enjoy and to celebrate, to eat to her heart's content. And then she gets a to-go bag, gets to take the leftovers back to Naomi with extra stalks of grain that Boaz has given to her. And she gets home and Naomi, probably wide-eyed from all of the food, asks, where did you get all of this? 
Then Ruth tells her, verse 19, the man I worked with today, his name is Boaz. And look what Naomi responds with in chapter two, verse 20. Then Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, may the Lord bless him because he has not abandoned his kindness to the living or the dead. Naomi continued, the man is a close relative. He is one of our family redeemers. Don't miss that phrase, family redeemer, kinsman redeemer. A kinsman redeemer is a man in the family who is responsible for preserving the family land and the family name after a tragedy. In Ruth's case, the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, is a family member on Elimelech's side. And he is the one who can preserve Elimelech's land and Elimelech's family name after his death. Well, after some time passes between chapter 2, verse 23, and chapter 3, verse 1, Naomi is wondering why Boaz hasn't made a move towards Ruth yet. Okay, it's time for some romance. So like any good mother-in-law, Naomi starts scheming on how she can set up Ruth and Boaz. So chapter 3, Naomi tells Ruth to get gussied up. It's time to look pretty. It's time for Boaz to take notice. And she says two things. You need to smell good and you need to look good. Look here in the text, verse 3. Naomi said to Ruth, wash, put on perfumed oil, and wear your best clothes. Okay, it's date night and we need to get you a husband. And so Naomi is coaching Ruth up on how to get a man's attention. But then she also coaches her up on how to take this relationship to the next level. Look at verse 3. Go down to the threshing floor, but don't let the man know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, notice the place where he's lying. Go in and uncover his feet and lie down. Then he will explain to you what you should do. So in essence, uncovering Boaz's feet and lying down is Ruth's way of saying, let's get married. Okay, it's a little bit unorthodox for us, but she is communicating, I am interested in getting married. This past fall, when Christy and I were in Swaziland, I was talking with some young men there, and I asked them, I said, so if you want to get engaged to this girl? And there's guys like, yeah, we're, we're all looking to get engaged to these different girls. And I said, well, what's the process? How do you do that? And here's what they told me. So the boy has a friend who is his representative, And he, this representative, will go and meet with a representative that comes from the girl's dad. So these two representatives who are connecting to the families come in and they have uh, a, a discussion, a dialogue. They begin bartering over what the terms of agreement are going to be. And throughout the negotiations, typically it comes to about 18 to 20 cows that the boy has to buy for the girl's dad. So the boy will go off and he'll work and he'll save and and he'll just try and make enough money so he can go and buy the 20 cows. He then takes them to his, his, this girl's dad and says, well, here you go. And then the engagement is official. And they said, well, how did you propose to your wife? And I said, well, I went to my mother, my father-in-law and I said, hey, I love your daughter and I would like the opportunity to marry her. Are you okay with that? And he said, Yes. And then I went and bought a ring. And one night I I was talking with her and I said, hey, I love you. And then I got down on one knee and I said, will you marry me? And she said, yes. And they said, that is so silly. And I said, that's silly. 
Like, what, you're buying cows for one another, right? Well, that's what's happening here in Ruth chapter 3. We see Ruth laying down at Boaz's feet, and she's saying, I'm ready to take this relationship to the next level. I'm ready for you to put a ring on it, okay? It's time to get married. So look what happens in chapter 3, beginning with verse 8. At midnight, Boaz was startled, turned over, and there lying at his feet was a woman. So he asked, who are you? I am Ruth, your servant, she replied. Take me under your wing, for you are a family redeemer. Then he said, may the Lord bless you, my daughter. You have shown more kindness now than before because you have not pursued younger men, whether rich or poor. Now don't be afraid, my daughter. I will do for you whatever you, do, whatever you say, since all the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Yes, it is true that I am a family redeemer, but there is a redeemer closer than I am. Stay here tonight and watch what happens here. And in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, that's good. Let him redeem you. But if he doesn't want to redeem you, as the Lord lives, I will. Now lie down until morning. So she laid down at his feet until morning, but got up while it was still dark. Then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. And he told Ruth, bring the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When she held it out, he shoveled six measures of barley into her shawl. And she went into the town. She went to her mother-in-law, Naomi, who asked her, what happened, my daughter? Then Ruth told her everything the man had done for her. She said, he gave me these six measures of barley because he said, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Naomi said, my daughter, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest unless he resolves this today. Wow. What a turn of events. Boaz wakes up and he finds Ruth lying there at his feet. And he's, he's, he's very open to marrying this girl, but there's a problem. There's another man in the way. Because of the family lineage, another guy gets the first option. But Boaz makes himself clear. If this guy's out and doesn't want to marry you, I will. Well, at dusk, Boaz gives Ruth lots of food to take back to Naomi. When Ruth gets back, it's time for an early morning mother-daughter conversation a little chat on the couch it's as if they put on their extra large sweatpants sitting on the couch sipping coffee with hallmark christmas movies on in the background and they begin talking about what has just happened that night naomi wants all the details so verse 16 she says well what happened my daughter verse 16 then ruth told her everything the man had done for her then you can hear Naomi giving just timely, motherly advice. My daughter, verse 18, wait until you find out how things go, for he won't rest unless he resolves this today. Well, she was right. That day, Boaz sets up a town hall meeting with all of the elders in the town and the family redeemer of the guy who gets first dibs. Well, I want to encourage you, when you get home, go back and study this. These four chapters, you can read it start to finish in about 15 minutes, but there is so much to unpack here. But long story short, Boaz seizes the opportunity and he becomes the family redeemer and he marries Ruth. Fast forward to chapter four, verse 13. We have the first wedding, the honeymoon, and the firstborn son. Verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. 
He slept with her, and the Lord granted conception to her, and she gave birth to a son. So, Kenneth, how does this connect to Christmas? Let me give you four ways. Number one, this Christmas, remember, God is working even when you don't see it. God sent a famine to Bethlehem to lead Naomi to Moab with her husband and two sons. You see, Naomi is a hungry refugee in a foreign land. She becomes a widow, a widow and she becomes childless. The situation was so bad that when she and, and Ruth came back to Bethlehem, she tells the people of the town in chapter 1, verse 20, don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, because the Almighty has made me bitter. I went away full, but the Lord brought me back empty. You see, Naomi's plight brought her such helplessness and hopelessness because she had no husband, no one who could lead her, no one who could provide for her, no one who could protect her. She had no children to carry on the family name. But through it all, God is at work. You and I can read the story from redemptive history. We know how this story ends. But in the midst of it, all she saw was sorrow, suffering, pain. But God loves to turn tragedy around into triumph for his glory and the good of his people. Naomi was suffering, but she could not see what God was up to. She was discouraged and uncertain of the future. Maybe you're here and you're thinking, this Christmas, I'm in a lot of pain. I am suffering. I feel lonely. I feel depression. And I just don't know if I can go on. Maybe you're even asking the question, God, how could you allow this to happen? May I say to you this morning, God is at work. Even though you can't feel it, even though you can't see it, God is at work in the midst of your pain. And he is working for something bigger than you can see. Hear him say throughout his word, trust me, trust me. I am at work even when you don't see it. God keeps his promises from generation to generation. He is trustworthy in all of his ways. Even in the dark days, God is at work. If this Christmas is painful for you, if you're in the deepest of despair, be reminded that God is at work even though you can't see it. Even though you can't feel it. Maybe your marriage is just not firing on all cylinders. Maybe you've got a child who's just walking in foolishness and disobedience. Maybe you're seeing people close to you suffer. Maybe you've met with a doctor and he's given you some bad news and the future looks bleak. May I say to you that God is working, even though you can't see it. But number two, I want to remind you that this Christmas is a reminder that death does not have the final word. The book begins with Naomi living in a foreign land because of famine, and she's a widow. She's childless. Her, one of her daughters-in-law says, has left to go back to her family. But the book ends with Naomi living in her home country. 
She's being provided for through Boaz. And now she is a grandmother caring for a baby born in Bethlehem. Don't miss that. You see, because of another baby boy that one day would be born in Bethlehem, this baby would grow up and he would die and he would suffer and he would rise again on the third day so that death does not have the final word. Maybe this Christmas you're grieving over the death of someone you love. You feel great sorrow because you feel lonely. This year you've lost people who were close to you. Well, Christmas is God's reminder that death does not have the final word. Maybe this Christmas you feel like you're living in Ruth chapter 1. You feel like you're Naomi and you are hurting and you are grieving. I want to remind you that death does not have the final word. Just look at Jesus. Third, this Christmas be reminded that God is preparing for the future. Isn't it amazing that through this Moabite woman, a king would come? Verse 17, the neighborhood women said, a son has been born to Naomi, and they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Do you see that? Ruth is the great-grandmother of David. Obed, this little baby resting in her lap, will become the grandfather of King David. From the beginning of this book to the very end, we see our God preparing for the future. And through this Moabite woman, many generations later, a greater king is coming. Born in Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling cloths, and lying in a manger. And this baby would redeem a people with his own blood. And he tells us in John 14, I go and prepare a place for you, so that where I am, you may be also. We see a God who is in pursuit of preparing for the future. We see God preparing for the future through this Moabite woman, ultimately pointing forward to Jesus, and Jesus who redeems the people with his own blood and says, I am going to go and prepare a future for you. Christmas is God's reminder that he's preparing for the future. Fourth and finally, Christmas is God's reminder that God has provided the kinsman redeemer. Boaz came and he redeemed Ruth. Motivated by love, he paid the price. He married his bride and he redeemed her for himself. Well, Christmas is God's reminder that a greater Boaz has come to redeem Motivated by love, Jesus paid the price and he will one day marry his bride, the church, and he's going to redeem us for himself. And he has made a way to do that through his death on the cross and victorious resurrection. You see, the point of Christmas is to drive us to God's love, realizing the person and work of Jesus, who was born as a baby in Bethlehem, grew up and lived a perfect sinless life that you and I couldn't live. And he died the death that we deserved at the cross. And he was buried, but he did not stay dead. On the third day, he got up out that grave and he is alive today. And this good news of the gospel is the story that God is writing. 
But do you know the best news of all about this story? This story is true. It is trustworthy. And when you come to the point when you turn away from your sin and you trust in Jesus by faith, it is then that God begins writing a story with your life because of this story written with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is what Christmas is all about. Thank you.